Our scripture reading today comes from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you do not have works? Can that faith save you? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May, Lord, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, we are in the book of James, and, and today our text is one of the most interesting and has been one of the most controversial texts in the book of James and perhaps in the New Testament for a number of reasons. One re reason relates to a very basic understanding of a Christian faith and, and the second reason is the issue James is addressing directly in the book. You see James is a, a book of wisdom and we said that wisdom is all about the application of biblical truth to everyday living and understanding the two questions raised by James in this text really is a foundation for, a genuine foundation for understanding what it really means to follow Jesus in everyday living. The first question goes to the foundation for our faith, our relationship to God. It goes to the issue of why Jesus ever came to walk amongst us. These verses are often cited as one of the greatest contradictions in the Bible. Are we saved and brought into a relationship with God by what we do or by what Jesus did at the cross? And this is an issue that has plagued the church throughout, Christ, throughout the church history for all of its existence. You know, most of us here would probably say very clearly an easy question to answer right. We're brought into a relationship with God by what Jesus did. But if we don't understand the importance of that, we'll never fully appreciate what God has done for us in Jesus. James is often seen to be in complete contradiction, conflict with Paul, on the issue about how we're brought into a relationship with Jesus. James writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But Paul writes, for we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Do you see the contradiction that might be there in those two verses? If we don't understand the importance of this question, then we never fully will understand the difference between Christianity and all every other religion practice in this world and will never appreciate the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The second question goes to the foundation of why wisdom is so important. This is the question James is asking. What is real faith? If wisdom is the practical application of truth to everyday living, then genuine faith is about what we do, how we live it out. And so James starts in with these very rhetorical questions at the beginning of our text. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can that faith save you? And obviously the answer is, of course not. So think about what we've talked about in James already. We've talked about how in God wants to help us and be present with us in the difficulties and challenges in life. We've talked about how we speak in, in the words we use in our heart attitudes as we, we talk about life and people. And then last week we talked about how we uh, take care of and respond to the poor and marginalized in society. That's all about practical Christianity. How do we live out our faith? What do we do with our lives? It's talking about our works. And so uh, the second question that comes up in this text is really impacts how we love and respond to people. So obviously these, these two points are very connected. They're the foundation for the two great commandments. You know, the first commandment is of Scripture is if, that we love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And if we're brought into a relationship only because of what God did, then that's why we should love him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. We should be eternally grateful for all that he's done. And then if we look at the second aspect of this question, that our faith is demonstrated by our works, that impacts how we love our neighbor as ourself. So it, it goes to the heart of what faith is. And so each week, we've highlighted one verse in the book of James that relates to the topic today. And this week's verse is James 2.17. You'll see it on the top of your bulletin. And it says, very simply, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's, let's say that verse together. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's say it one more time. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, all the verses we've looked at in the James are very short verses. And if we root them in our lives and hearts, there'll be a constant reminder to us of how we're called to live and will have a profound impact on our lives. I encourage you to take that verse home. Uh, just think about it during the week. Post it where you'll see it and, and, and repeat it. Let it become a part of, of your life. Let's look at that first question. And James, apparent contradiction with Paul. How we enter into a relationship with God. You know, Martin Luther was the driving force behind the Protestant Reformation. And he really struggled with the book of James. He lived in an age where the church really confused this whole issue because the church basically said at that point in time, if you want to be in relationship to God, to earn God's favor, you have to do these things. You have to pay these money, buy these indulgences. And so it was all about what we did as people, the things you did for God. Yet Paul in his gospel was saying it was by faith and what God alone has done and has nothing to do with what we do. And Martin Luther saw that in the book of Romans and Galatians and so he really struggled with the book of James. And he said this about James. It's a very straw epistle in comparison with Paul's epistles, for it has no gospel character to it. Martin Luther, in fact, said he wasn't even sure that it belonged in the New Testament because it seemed to be so contradictory. 
And, and that's really the key issue in human religion in much of Paul's writings in the New Testament. Paul was emphatic in saying that we are brought into a relationship with God by faith alone, believing and accepting what God has done through us, Jesus Christ. We don't do anything to earn God's favor. In fact, we can earn God's favor because we can never meet his standards. So we only simply believe and accept what God has already done for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's God's gift to us. That's the essence of Paul's teaching in Romans and Galatians. He focused on that because many early Jewish Christians believed that to follow Jesus, you had to become a Jew first and follow all the Mosaic ceremonial law. So they were struggling with, and they were basically saying that if you really want to earn God's favor, you've got to do these things. You've got to follow these laws, and if you don't, you're not truly a follower of Jesus. It required them to do something to earn God's acceptance. So faith was contingent upon you following the Jewish religious rituals. And isn't that human nature? I think deep down inside of us, we all want to earn what we get. You know, we all want to do it ourselves because that means we're in control of our lives and God owes us. You see, when something bad happens, don't we often question God about why he allows it? Why? Because we've lived a good life. He kind of owes us. And that's what all human religion is basically about, earning God's favor. We do this, this, and this, and God will bless us. But if God does everything for us, then our response has to be different. Then we owe him, and there is a part of us in our human nature that doesn't like that. We don't want to be in his debt because that means we're called to follow him. So it's important for us as Christians to be honest and, and when we look at Scripture, recognize that there are all kinds of contradictions in the Bible, apparent contradictions in the Bible. You know, it's one of the most common objections to the Bible. You know, and we need to realize it's okay if we don't always have all the answers. Some contradictions are easier to explain than others. Some are very difficult. You know, if you go online and Google contradictions in the Bible, you'll find many sites that talk about them. And most contradictions, with a little bit of research, are really pretty easily explained. There are some that aren't so easily explained. But we should never be intimidated by those comments. And, and, and when we think about today's text, Paul and James are really writing from two different perspectives about what it means to be a Christian. Paul is writing to explain how one becomes a follower of Jesus, and James is writing to explain how one should live as a follower of Jesus. Do you hear the difference? Paul is writing to explain how one begins a relationship with God through Jesus, and James is writing to tell us what we should be doing if we are claiming to be a Christian. And the key to this is really understanding the word justify. You know, that word is being used in two different ways by Paul and James. You know, if you go home and Google a definition of justify, you will see it has two different primary meanings. The second definition relates to religion. It means to declare or make righteous, make right in the sight of God. And it talks about how you're brought into a relationship with God, how you're accepted by God. 
And Paul is saying that it is only by faith alone, believing and accepting Jesus' death and resurrection, God's gift to you, that you could be forgiven and made right with God. So Paul wrote, For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from the works prescribed by the law. So we, we are justified by what Jesus did for us. James is using the other definition of the word justify, which means to show or prove to be right or reasonable. You know, synonyms for this definition would be giving reasons or explaining what you believe. So James is saying that your works are the things that you do to explain and demonstrate that your faith is real. So when James says over and over that your faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead, what he's saying is, okay, you say you have faith. The proof is that you have, it's seen by what you do, by how you live your life, by your good works. So James wrote, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's saying that faith is demonstrated by what you do. There's really no contradiction between the two, James and Paul. Paul in the Bible is declaring that we are made right with God by faith only by believing and accepting God's gift through Jesus Christ, that we're forgiven because he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And James in the Bible is simply saying that our faith is proven to be real by what we do, our actions, and explain and demonstrate our faith. Paul catches this, this very, in a very famous verse in Ephesians 2 where he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Okay, that's his side of the coin. But then he goes on to say this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So notice the underlines. You know, we're saved through faith, not as a result of what we do, not of works. But we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which he has always had his plan for us, that we would do these things. So if we generally understand that and experience God's grace, we're going to be passionately in love with God. Why? because we know that we could never earn God's favor. None of us can ever live up to God's standards. We've all broken his laws and commands. And we'll know that we'll unconditionally loved and accepted and forgiven by God, that he's done everything for us so that we can be adopted into his family. And nothing will ever separate us from his love. We are secure. We have a home, an eternal home. His love was always there. We have nothing to fear in life and death. God didn't owe us anything, but instead he chose to love us by sending his son Jesus in the world. And that makes what? Following Jesus, not a burden. It should make it a joy. It, it's not a crushing of our independence and value as a person, but rather it is a completion of who we were meant to be by God. It's a declaration that we are valued, significant, completely accepted as we are. And that completely separates Jesus and Christianity from any other religious religion in the world. That's why the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
loving God? How is your passion and love for God? How is it? But let's look at, let's address the second question. The question James is asking in his writings, why is wisdom so important? Now, how many of you are fans of the New England Patriots? Come on, how many of you are fans? Okay, I think probably most of you are if you, if you follow sports at all. And, and Sandy was very cooperative today. I didn't even talk to her, but she was wearing a Patriots shirt if you noticed that she was reading scriptures. You know, if you talk, what do you do if you're a fan of the Patriots? You talk about the Patriots. You wear their sports item, a Patriot jersey, a, a baseball cap with their logo on, or maybe you drink coffee out of a mug with the Patriots logo on it. You know, after this past Monday night's game with the Chicago Bears, there's a lot of dialogue going on about the Patriots. <laughs> you know, um, what's wrong with the Patriots? Has Belichick finally lost it as a coach? Who should the new quarterback be? If you watch Monday night's game, you know, after the first three series when Jones was the quarterback, the crowd began to start chanting, what, Zappy, Zappy. You know, they wanted Bailey Zappy in to be the quarterback. But the reality is, it doesn't matter what the fans think about all those questions. It really only matters what the coach and the players think, and perhaps what the owner thinks. <laughs> the players are the ones who play the game. They're the ones who follow the coach. If the players are divided or don't follow the coach, or the coach doesn't know what he's doing, then the team's really in trouble. And so James is asking that question in our text today, because there's a difference. Are we a fan or a follower of Jesus Christ? We can be fans of the Patriots of a football team, but we're not the players. <laughs> okay, we're not the ones on the field that score. James is asking that question, are we a fan or are we a follower of Jesus Christ? Are we just a fan of him or are we the ones who actually play the game with him? You know, a fan likes Jesus, even loves Jesus, but it's not a real player in the game of life. It doesn't mean that they, you know, it doesn't mean that they really follow Jesus. And James goes on and says it this way. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he's saying that the evil spirits, the demons, in a sense, are fans of Jesus, but not followers. They know who Jesus is and God is. They know what Jesus did on the cross. They know that Jesus is God's son, and one day he will rule the world, and they will lose the ultimate game of life. They've been to the best seminary in the world. They know the truth about God and Jesus. They tremble with fear, but their knowledge of God does not result in an awe or respect for God that allows them and leads them to walk in obedience to God. Rather, it results in an abject terror that causes them to fight against everything that God is doing. They know the right beliefs about Jesus, but they refuse to allow that knowledge to follow and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. So their knowledge does not result in a relationship with God. You know, going back to the Patriots, football fans all around the country hate the Patriots because they won all the time for two decades. Any one team that wins all the time, fans of other teams usually come to hate them. It doesn't matter what sport. You know, people hated the Dallas Cowboys for a long time. They hate the New York Yankees because they always won for a long time. Well, James is saying in that verse, 
What the evil spirits and Satan know is that Jesus has won. And they hate that about him because they want to win and they know they won't win. So they try to attract as many followers as possible, keep people from following Jesus. So James is asking the question, are you a fan or a follower of Jesus? You know, James was writing primarily to Jewish Christians when he wrote this book. The earliest Christians were mostly Jews, and they had been scattered throughout the then-known world, throughout the Roman Empire. James writes in his introduction, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So he was writing to Jews who had been scattered throughout the then-known world and became followers of Jesus. And a daily prayer for the Jews is much like the Lord's Prayer today that we say every Sunday. And it's called the Shema. It's something that's repeated daily in Jewish religious life. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. And, and, and later there are some other additional verses that were added to it. But the first verse is the most famous, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So Jews everywhere would begin their prayers that way. So James kind of says to them, he kind of mocks that tradition when he says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he's saying to the Jewish Christians that even though you have repeated and prayed that prayer all of your life, it doesn't mean you're a true follower of God. It's possible that you're only a fan of God. One could say the Lord's Prayer all the time, but that doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. You may only be a fan of Jesus, just like the evil spirits were in many ways, what James is saying. You know, in, in, in the gospel preaching church in America, all through the 20th century, the emphasis, for the most part, has been on right doctrine. To be a Christian, one has to believe the right things. One gives an intellectual assent to something. And there is a, an important measure of truth to that. We do need to believe, to have faith, that Jesus is God's Son, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But what James is saying is we have to act on that belief. To have faith in Jesus means we commit to following Jesus in our everyday lives. You know, in the beginning, when we come to faith, we may not fully understand what that means, but we make a commitment to finding out about what it means to live for Jesus. We have to move on from being a fan, one who believes the right things, to being a follower, one who acts on those beliefs in everyday life. You know, Martin Luther King talked about this very issue in, in, in another way. Who is an atheist? We know an atheist is one who believes there is no God. And that would be a theoretical, a philosophical atheist. James and Martin Luther King are saying that there's another kind of atheist. Listen to his famous quote from Martin Luther King. He says this, The most dangerous type of atheism is not theoretical atheism, believing there is no God, but practical atheism. That's the most dangerous type. The world, even the church, is filled up with people who pay lip service to God and not life service. There is always a danger that we will make it appear externally that we believe in God when internally we don't. We say with our mouths that we believe in him, but we live with our lives like he never existed. That is the ever-present danger confronting religion. That's a dangerous type 
of atheism. So this, he's obviously talking about hypocrisy in the church. We say we believe one thing, but we don't live in a way that's consistent with that belief. So he's talking about the difference between being a fan and a follower, between paying lip service or actually offering life service to following Jesus. And, and you, you know, we can have all kinds of examples about that. You know, for years and years, we still struggle with this in a country. There were pastors and Christians and churches that believed African Americans, you know, didn't have the same equality, racism. And yet they complained to follow Jesus, and yet Scripture says there's neither Jew nor slave, free nor male nor female. We're all equal. That's a basic contradiction. But it happens in so many other areas in so many other ways. And so there are many scriptures that make numerous references to this fact, to the difference between being a fan and a follower, between lip service and life service. And, and Jesus addresses this in Matthew 7 in one of the most compelling texts. He says this, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do what my Father in heaven wants them to do. That's a scary text. Jesus is there connecting belief and action, saying that action, what we do, is the ultimate proof of real belief. And he goes on to say, when a judgment day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name we drove out demons and performed miracles. Then I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you wicked people. And so what Jesus is saying, it's possible to have a knowledge of Jesus that doesn't translate into a real relationship. Such a faith is not a saving faith. So Jesus is issue a warning to anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Look at your life. Look at our lives. Does our faith in Jesus move you towards a life that is more and more seeking to please and obey God? That doesn't mean perfection. <laughs> None of us are ever going to be perfect. We're still flawed people. We make mistakes. We still have a lot to learn. We can blow hot and cold when it comes to our walk with God at times. But it simply means that real faith keeps drawing us back to God, acknowledging that when we're wrong and seeking to know how he wants us to live to keep moving forward. It's not perfection. It's a desire to keep learning and growing and changing. And so the motivation to walk in obedience to God comes from understanding the first question, that God's done everything for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, James goes on to give us two examples from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. And I'm just going to talk about Abraham here. James 2.23 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he was made right with God. Now that line goes back to Genesis 15, where God promised Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations, that all the people in the world would be blessed through his descendants. But Abraham looks, kind of talks to God and says, wait a minute, I'm old. I don't have any sons. How can that be? And God tells Abraham, promised him that he would have a son. And Genesis tells us that he believed God. He had faith in God, and he was made right with God. Faith came first. After Isaac was born, God asked Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice. Now, we don't understand that because that's so foreign to our culture. Why would God ever ask him to do that? But in Abraham's day, in many of those religions, they offered children as sacrifices to their gods. It was part of the cultural context all around them. So Abraham would understand that, 
if God came, it wouldn't sound completely strange because he knew lots of faiths did that. But now the Old Testament makes clear that the Jews as followers were never supposed to do that. So God wasn't going to allow Abraham ever to do that. But he was challenging Abraham and testing Abraham. And, and so James is saying that because Abraham was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to God, that's visible proof that his faith was real, that he was a follower, that his faith was genuine. And James adds at the end of verse 23, this little line, and he was called a friend of God. Jesus says in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Saying we're friends if we seek to follow and obey him in what we do in everyday life. We're also his friend. So our first question, that first issue that Martin Luther King struggled with, are we accepted by God based on what we do or based solely on what Jesus did at the cross? That's the foundation for real faith. You know, and, and to do that, we have to let go of the idea that we can ever, that we are good, and that we deserve God's blessing. You know, have you come to the place where you genuinely can say to yourself, I realize that I have never deserved God's grace or mercy. There's nothing I can do that would ever say I deserve what God has done for me. That's the starting place for real faith. It's never too late in life to acknowledge that truth. The thief on the cross did that in the last hours of his life. Then the second question follows logically after. Do I seek to live my life in a way that demonstrates a commitment to following Jesus? So James says in 127 that we looked at last week, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is saying three things about a real faith. There's a religious aspect to it. We worship and we speak passionately about our love for God and Jesus. We go to church, we do the religious things, we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. That's the religious things. But then he goes on to say, too, we care for the poor and marginalized in a real and consistent way. And we looked at that last week. That's, that runs all through Scripture. Then he adds, we live in a life that reflects God's moral values and commandments. In other words, we shape our values by God's word, not by the commonly accepted values of the culture around us. And so what James is saying is to, to be any kind of witness in the world, we have to do the religious thing. We, we, we go to church, we identify our followers of Jesus, but then we also care for the poor and the marginalized. And we shape our values by God's values, not the values of the world around us, so we're different. All three things are part of it. If we're gonna have a witness in the world. We can't do one and ignore the other two. We can't just do the religious thing, going to church and identifying as a Christian, without doing the other things. James is saying caring for the poor and living a lifestyle different from the world are absolutely essential also. So do you see how this all kind of ties together? Wisdom is about the ability to apply our knowledge of God to how we live our lives in a practical, visible way. That's how we live our lives as the ultimate demonstration that our faith is real. It's reflected in how we love our neighbors and neighbors or anybody we encounter in life, the people around us. 
Jesus said he came to serve, not to be served. So James asks us if we're committed to serving God and others by how we live. It's never too late to move from a fan to a follower of Jesus. We can become a follower at any point in our life. It's never too late. But if I claim to be a follower, James is saying we always need to be asking ourselves some basic questions. Am I seeking to know more and more about Jesus? Am I willing to change my moral convictions and bring them into line with God's values? Or am I just going to hang on to what my values are and what the world around me is? Am I willing to change how I treat people, some people, especially those who have hurt us or betrayed us? Am I willing to forgive? Do I demonstrate concern for all people regardless of who they are in a tangible and practical way? Am I willing to follow Jesus with my finances and use them for his glory? Am I willing to admit my mistakes and sins to God and ask for forgiveness? You know, a few weeks ago, I did a memorial service for Carol on the first anniversary of her death. And what was amazing to me that one of her oncology nurses attended a year later. So Ellen and I had a friend, Jean, who died many years ago from cancer. And at her wake, her oncologists, doctors, and nurses attended her wake. Those things almost never happen. Why did they happen? Well, because both Jean and Carol continued to live out their faith even as they were dying. They were still continuing to speak about Jesus, to live for Jesus, and they had an impact in people's lives. And those nurses and doctors came to see. They just didn't give up. They were thinking about other people still serving Jesus even as they knew they were dying. You know, John Ortberg, a well-known Christian pastor, speaker, and author, he wrote the popular book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat. <laughs> the title. It's a good book if you haven't read it. And he told this story about his father and the example his father was sitting and, and his father spoke to him as he was moving into an assisted living home. His father said to his son, John, there are a lot of people here who need me. I'm still serving and following Jesus. That's a legacy of faith. What an example. Normally we think of such a move into, into an assisted living facility as be, be the end, beginning of the end of our purpose in life. But John's father saw it as an opportunity to continue to serve and follow Jesus. So no matter what seasons of life we find ourselves in, if we love Jesus, we'll always be looking for ways to follow him and share his love with others. You know, I, I will close with just this simple truth. You know, psychologists tell us that if we have a real sense of purpose and serve other people in a healthy way, that is the most effective treatment for depression in dealing with life. The wisdom of James is telling us that the healthiest way to live is to follow Jesus, loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and serving others, loving our neighbors. It means that we're continually seeking to serve God and others, and rather than just being concerned with our own life and our own situation, we're seeing others and looking at others. That's the healthy way to live. That was God's prescription for how we live. So what are you willing to do? Are you willing to ask God, what's the next way that you can serve him? How can that be? Maybe it's praying regularly for someone. Maybe it's, you know, I heard a story this past week about a, a, a lady who was living in 
a nursing home. You know, she was blind, couldn't speak real well, had issues. But in, in conversation, she, she did say to someone that says, whenever I hear a siren, somebody coming in or, or something like that, I pray for that person. So here she is. We would look at her and say, totally helpless, but she's saying, she's still serving Jesus. Whenever she hears an alarm or a crash or somebody coming in, she prays for that person, that family associated with that person. No matter where we are, what time of life, we can always serve. And James is saying, that's real faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your, your words, your scripture. Father, you are the author of life. You created us. You know how we live best. And so, Father, I, I think sometimes we look at the commandments, we look at uh, religion as a burden, but yet it's really your blessing to us that you want us to live whole and productive lives. And so by recognizing that you've done everything for us, that we love you and we love others, you turn ourselves outward in a way that allows us to know that we're valued and accepted and, 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 and gives us a healthy perspective on life. Thank you that you are the author of life. That in Jesus Christ, you have offered us the best way to live. And thank you for, for the book of James as he explains it out, what it really means and how it impacts our lives. Father, help each of us. Help me. Help all of us to continue to seek to better understand how it is that you call us to live. Because we do love you and thank you for everything you've done. And we want to honor you in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.